0: You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit AscendKC.org. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 19. We have had already quite a weekend. Last night in our community was a, a good night, wasn't it? Home of the Chiefs. We had Disciple Now up here, and I know many of your uh, families have been impacted by that. Thank you for your flexibility as we've kind of rescheduled. But, man, what a great Saturday of the teens studying Jonah. And I know there's a lot of host families that didn't get a lot of sleep last night. And then there's something about a weather. You know, I was was remembering this morning as I drove in, I was in seminary my last year and uh, we were living out in Los Angeles and I was getting heavily recruited by a church just outside of Los Angeles. And this morning I'm thinking to myself, what, why did you come back home? But I'm looking out on why I came back home. Revelation 19, let me read our passage and then we will study it together. It says in verse 11, and if you don't have a Bible, page 1040 is where Revelation 19 is in those Bibles in front of you. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who was in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived the nations who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You know, you almost sense as you're reading this that John was anticipating the closing of this amazing book. And you know, when you think of last words, you understand that the one who's speaking them is intentionally choosing these words because he or she knows that the last words are often the most remembered. And so it's almost as though John is choosing the details, choosing the vocabulary because he wants to make sure that that original audience walks away from this book with these last words ringing in their ears. And these last words intend to provide the instruction that the audience needs to be able to conquer and endure It reminds me of an experience I had growing up that if you have shared this experience, you know that it is impossible to effectively communicate the experience. That is, watching the changing of the guard of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington, Virginia. It is an amazingly precise process. A soldier chosen from the 3rd Army Battalion, given the award of the badge that is third least likely for someone to receive in the military, walks back and forth on a mat, guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier. Each step is accounted for. Each movement of the weapon is strategic. And that is just a part of a strategic process. The choice of the uniform, the assembly of the uniform, the putting on of the uniform is equally precise. And that soldier is only removed from that duty in a very precise ceremony that is the changing of the guard. And what motivates this elite group of men and women is what is referred to as the Sentinels Creed. It will be up on the screen. And it is these words, and more, appropriately, more importantly, the ownership by these guard members of this creed that motivates them to guard the tomb 24 hours a day, seven days a week, including this weather, check out this video. This is Hurricane Isabel, 80 mile an hour winds, trees toppling, no crowd, no fanfare, fulfilling the duty of the mat. Now, the reason for this now makes a little bit more sense when the creed is put back on the screen with certain words and phrases underlined. And you can begin to see some parallels to the Christian life. See terms like perseverance. See terms like motivation of a a profile and an expectation of perfection. But more importantly, look at the motivation, is not the crowds. It's not the badge that this guard member has been awarded. Look at what it says. The, the motivation for the fulfillment of the duty of the mat is the soldier in the tomb. The value that that guard member places on the sacrifice that was performed. And it is for that unknown soldier that the guard is motivated that whether day or night, whether sun or storm, they fulfill joyfully their duty. In fact, if you go out to YouTube and you watch some of the interviews and the testimonies of these guard members, it is a joy for them. And in fact, they relish those days when it was cold, when it was stormy, because they are motivated by the value that they place on the soldier. Beloved, this is the parallel, I think, to Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Is that what John is doing is reminding us that the Christian life often devolves into duty. We know that the Bible says, as a Christian, you do this, you don't do that. You pray, you don't cuss. You read the Bible, you don't get drunk. You go to church, you don't not go to church. But I think as Christians, we often think that the motivation is the very do and don't of the Bible. But what John is reminding the readers is that we conquer and we are endure because three things. In fact, you can see the big idea in your notes. That is that John reminds us that the motivation by day or night, sun or storm, the majesty of the king provides the motivation for us to conquer and endure. But let's answer the expected question in three ways. The question, why do we conquer and endure? Number one, and most important, because of who he is. And beloved, listen, this is the bulk of the sermon. We will spend a significant amount of time because if you look at the number of verses in this section, the most amount of time is devoted to this. We walk the mat of the Christian life, most of all because of who he is. Verse one says, then I saw, which by the way, if you have been part of Revelation and this series and the study, this is review, but if you're new to the study, I propose to you that when you read, then I saw, or after this, that John is not speaking of chronology or order of time, but instead the next vision or the next description. That's gonna become very important when we study chapter 20, Lord willing, next week. He's not speaking of chronology. He's simply saying, this is the next vision. This is the next scene that I'm describing. And what happens is, look at what it says in the text, heaven is open. Heaven authorizes what follows. This is from God directly. And then he uses the word that we've seen repeatedly in Revelation, behold. John is alerting the audience and the reader to the significance of what follows, and what follows, look at the text, is a white horse. Now, this is not the first white horse in the book of Revelation. In fact, you can write down chapter 6 and verse 2. The first seal is described as a white horse and a rider on it, and there the rider is said to conquer and be conquering. And so I submit to you that what John is doing here by using the symbolism of a white horse is describing someone who conquers and is conquering. Now, back in chapter 6, verse 2, I propose to you that John is not describing a literal horse that we can expect to see sometime in the future. He's not describing a literal rider that we can someday expect to see riding on a white horse in the future. He's doing what he's done throughout Revelation, and that is he's describing symbolically something that he wants to teach us literally. And so back in chapter 6 in verse 2, we saw that John is describing in the description of the white horse and the rider on it as the world system that on repeat attempts to conquer humanity. And don't we see this? We see this with sports teams, and I had a whole different illustration teed up if we lost last night. But back in the 80s and 90s, do you remember in, in the early 2000s, the, the team that in the NFL seemed to never be able to be beat was the Patriots. In the NBA in the 80s and 90s, it was the Chicago Bulls in the 70s. Many of you can't remember this, but it is the Oakland A's in baseball. We see entertainers rise up that we think they are the best, the Beatles. We see politicians and military systems, the Soviet Union, the Nazis. We see them rise up. We, we see the products, the iPhones, the iPads, the iPods. And before you know it, we realize that they're part of some antique store or some Discovery Channel pro- uh, 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 show. The world system is constantly offering something that will conquer the human imagination. THAT WILL CONQUER WHAT WE THINK WE NEED MOST, THAT WILL CONQUER THE THIRST FOR AUTHORITY AND POWER AND CONTROL. THAT WAS THE WHITE HORSE OF Revelation 6-2. THIS ONE IS DIFFERENT. AND THE DESCRIPTIONS ARE INTENDED TO SHOW HOW THIS IS DIFFERENT. IN FACT, HAVE WE NOT SEEN JUST BEYOND HISTORY IN THE BIBLE ITSELF opportunities to see conquerors. In fact, would you write down Genesis chapter 14? I just read this a few days ago in my read through the Bible program. Abraham was living in a day where a group of four kings came down from the north and defeated a group of five kings. And his nephew Lot was taken in that battle, and what does he do? He assembles a group of 318 men from his family, goes after this group of four kings that defeated five kings. The the narrative is very clear about this, and Abraham's family defeats the four kings. That was a conqueror. How about David fast forward in Israel's history remember the song that the women sang Saul has killed his thousands but David has killed his ten thousands. You look at the conqueror Abraham. He lied in Egypt, he lied to Abimelech. He succumbed to the suggestion of his wife when it came to Hagar. Think about the conqueror David and Bathsheba and the census that displeased God. We see conquerors all throughout history since Genesis 3 who have arisen, both who seem to be good, some who seem to be bad, and they arise and their potential, but they fail. But John is describing a conqueror, look at the description in verse 11, who is faithful and true. Do you see it in the text? This is who he is. He is faithful. He doesn't have a Hagar incident. He doesn't have a Bathsheba incident. He is faithful. He is true 100%. And then look at the description of him as, as a, as a, with his eyes or with his judgment before his eyes. He is righteous, and he judges justly. That means there is no worthy criticism for this judge. Then it describes his eyes as a flaming fire. You can go back to chapter 1 and verse 14 and see John describe when he turns to see the source of the sound that was so loud and he sees Jesus himself and he describes him exactly in this way. That means his eyes see clearly. In fact, you can write down Hebrews four thirteen. Nothing is hidden from this writer. Verse 12, it says that he has many diadems on his head, which by the way, History assists us with this. History tells us that rulers and kings would wear headbands that would have jewels on them or diadems. And each diadem would represent a people group or a place over which this ruler had authority. And if you go back to chapter 12, the dragon had seven diadems on his headband. The beast in chapter 13 had ten diadems on his headband. But here, it's innumerable. Isn't that awesome? Many diadems... Verse 12, there's a name that no one knows but himself. What does this communicate? This writer is divine. He's infinite. We as human beings cannot fully grasp or comprehend everything that is contained in God himself. But let me just pause for a moment because I think sometimes we as Christians, in fact, dare I say many times, throw up our hands at this realization. In fact, I've been talking to people over the last couple of weeks about this study in Revelation. And I've been asking them, what, what do you think about some of these difficult topics like symbolism versus literal and tribulation versus not and rapture versus not and 666? And, and, and most of the responses are, well, I, look, pastor, I get it. We just have to trust that God's got this. I think that's throwing in the towel too early. How many times do we, when we read through the Bible in our programs, come across something like Judah and Tamar? Or the passage that I read last week in Ezekiel about the baby who's wallowing in its blood. And we we read these things and we just kind of skip past them because it stretches us and it causes us to feel uncomfortable. But listen, beloved, God provides those opportunities to better understand him purposefully. In fact, look at the quote the team will put up on the screen. It's this, we must remember God has revealed attributes about himself that are certainly stretching, but they invite our investigation and promise incredible rewards from the journey. In fact, I was just talking to to someone before I headed in here. I could say that's why I was late, but that wasn't it. And I was talking about these descriptions and how where I'm landing is so different than the 20th century uh, understanding of like left behind and thief in the night and all of the the time charts. And and I said, listen, my, my goal in preaching is not to force you to believe what I believe. My goal in preaching is to show you where I land and how I got there to model a robust process so that as we discuss tribulation, as we discuss the millennium, you bring your conclusion with a robust process personal wrestling, not a pastor that you follow, not a class that you taught, not a book series that you read, but your own journey. And if we land in different places on these non-essential important doctrines, then praise God, we've had iron sharpening iron. But I think too many times, including people in this room, we take Deuteronomy 29 29 too early in the process. What does that verse say? The secret things belong to God. And we just throw that out there as though God doesn't invite us to wrestle. Beloved, there is reward in the journey of wrestling. The descriptions continue, and now we begin to see John intentionally grabbing from Old Testament passages. And I'll try to highlight several of those. Verse 13, it says, he has a robe that was dipped in blood. Now, what do we New Testament Christians immediately think when we think that Jesus is wearing a robe dipped in blood? Don't we think about his crucifixion? And certainly we could go back to chapter 7 and verse 14 that describes saints in heaven wearing a white robe that is white because it's been washed in his blood of his atonement. But I don't think that's what John is specifically referring to here. In fact, they'll put a passage up on the screen, Isaiah 63, 1 through 4. And I'm more inclined to think that John is referring to this passage. It's a passage of Judgment. Describing how God will judge people with the imagery of their splattered blood on him. I think this is vivid imagery alerting the reader to the fact that the one he's describing will judge. And he will judge decisively and authoritatively, which leads to the next description of him in verse 13. It says that he was called, you see what it says? Look at the text, the word of God. The same author in his gospel about Jesus began by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And yes, the Word points us to Jesus, but Jesus is also the Word. And yes, he's the revelation of God himself, but I think in the book of Revelation, he's focused more specifically on the judgment of God. That when you see the phrase the Word of God or Jesus referred to as the Word in the book of Revelation, he's, he's focusing more specifically on the authority and the decisiveness of God's final judgment. <coughs> Verse 14 the armies of heaven assembled. Do you see it? Now let's just do some biblical interpretation here very quickly. Often we think of the armies of God as being angels, don't we? The heavenly hosts, the heavenly army back in Luke 2. But but look at the uniform of the army. Do you see it? They're wearing what color? White, bright, and pure. Did we just read that? Back in verse 8. I think this is describing the church, the believers of all time, from Genesis to Revelation that are following after the king. Now, this is interesting because the wording is specific. Verse 15, who is it that strikes down the nations? Look at the text. He does it. Verse 15, who is the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron? As Psalm 2, 9 and Isaiah eleven four 4 and Isaiah 49, 2 say, it's he. Who is the one who treads the winepress, verse 15, of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty? As chapter 14, verse 20 says in Isaiah 63, 3, it's he. Who is the one in verse 16 whose robe and thigh has the title king of kings and lord of lords? It is He. Isn't it fascinating how we often value people mostly and most after they die than when they were alive? I I think of my grandparents, and I remember the older they got and the older I got, the more visiting them seemed like a burden. But you know what? I'd give anything to have a coffee with my grandpa. Unfortunately, it would be Folgers, but then I would introduce him to the finer things. Salifoso. Many of you knew him. He was an elder at our church, just died of glioblastoma brain cancer. And when I found out about his diagnosis, I realized his time was short. And I would spend intentional time with him having what I called theological walks. I'd give anything to have one more theological walk with him, especially if he could come back from heaven because then he could teach me about revelation. Think of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Known to his regiment, but not to history. In fact, by the way, the process is fascinating of how that soldier was chosen. He was, all we know about it is a soldier who died in World War I. Four identical caskets were presented to a veteran of World War I, and that veteran just chose one of those four, and that is the tomb of the unknown soldier. We don't know anything about him other than he died in World War I. But in each one of these cases, the value that we place on them seems to be greater in death than in their life, how much more the one who died and still lives. We are given the privilege in this passage of focusing on him and the king, but the fact is, beloved, that we often place our value on this king conjoined with his benefits to us, don't we? Like, like, a, like a Siamese twin, we often cannot separate King Jesus from what he gives to us and what he does to us And I think that's what John is living in, is this tension, and he's forcing us to surgically remove the two for a moment. See, I think in the Christian life, we often think of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit immediately with the benefits that they have for us. And we do that in our prayers, don't we? Phrases that we often utter without even thinking of them. Dear Heavenly Father... Thank you for this day. But I think John is using this vivid imagery, both from Revelation and tying back to the Old Testament, to draw our attention to him and him alone. In fact, let me give you four ways we can grow in this. I would encourage you not just to write them down, but to apply them. Number one, read Scripture looking for the majesty of the King read scripture looking for the majesty of the king this morning i was reading the story of joseph which i'd submit to you it's one of the greatest stories in the bible and i'm reading about him in the pit and i'm reading about him with his brothers and being governor of egypt and i'm reading about him seeing his brothers but them not recognizing him and and being able to hear and understand them and asking intentional questions and then putting the money in the money bag Before you knew it, I was getting lost in the details of the story and not focusing on looking for the majesty of the king. Number two, prioritize reviewing his majesty in prayer. I've already alluded to this, but I think we could stand to grow in starting our prayers by rattling off some attributes of God and marinating in those Number three, grow in stretching your doctrine of God. Friends, you will come to ascend and spend enough time that I will present to you some perspectives of God that might not be comfortable. You'll read passages of scripture that will present to you things that will not be comfortable. I, read Genesis and read about Judah and Tamar. Reuben and Jacob's uh, uh, concubine, I guess you could say. (laughs) I mean, there are passages of scripture that stretch us. Lean into that. Don't run away from it. Number four, rehearse the biblical gospel. The gospel that the Bible presents, not one that makes us feel comfortable. The, The Bible presents that we are in ourselves totally depraved. That God chose us unconditionally only by his sovereign grace. That Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for all humanity, but efficient only for the elect. That his drawing is irresistible. That when he begins to draw somebody to salvation, there will not be a resistance. And when you are converted, you will be persevered until the end. That's what the Bible teaches about the gospel. Rehearse that over and over and over again. And when you do, beloved, it should elicit within us humility. It should elicit within us gratitude. It should help us come to the reality that we are in the heavenly ranks of God's army, not worrying about where. Not worrying about our role. You know what's fascinating about this description is that we are there just to make him look good. Look at the description of the battle. He, 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 not us. We're just there like, go, win, do it, Jesus. And see, when we have that perspective of him, that leads to the right perspective of us, and that helps us whether we're single or we're changing diapers, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or an executive whether we're opening the door for people on frigid temperatures or up on stage leading worship, conquering and enduring because of who he is. Number two, I told you these will be quicker. We conquer and endure because of who we were. Verse 17, then I saw, it's not chronology, it's just another perspective, another scene, another vision. And I think John is referring to a specific passage in the Old Testament. The team will put it up on the screen, Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20. And and when you look at this passage and you look at what John describes of uh, birds in the air feasting on flesh, you realize I think John is specifically tying in to this passage to take that symbolic description to teach literal truth. And in fact, I think there's a phrase that helps us see that this is symbolic because it's an adding to the Ezekiel passage, and it's found in verse 17. Do you see that he's saying directly overhead? He's used this phrase back in chapter 8, verse 13, describing the eagle that is directly overhead. This is symbolism. This is figurative. This is teaching us, though, a literal truth. These are not birds that are signed to physically eat flesh. This is borrowing from the prophetic language of Ezekiel 39 to teach a literal truth, and that is that Jesus is conquering and that the gospel levels the playing field. That's the point. In fact, let me show it to you by the text itself. Look at the specific descriptions. Kings, captains, mighty men, horses, riders, all men, free, slaves, small, great. Do you see that in the text? There is no horizontal category left out. And I do think John intentionally refers to a supper here to help us as readers understand his point. Look at what he says, that the angel says to the birds of the air, prepare for the great supper of God. Do you see that in verse 17? This is not the first mention of supper in chapter 19. Go back to verse 9. There, it's the great supper of the Lamb. Here, it's the great supper of God. I think John is using intentional descriptions to show us the point, and that is God conquers, and the gospel levels the playing field. In fact, look at this quote from Jim Hamilton. Here's the gospel, and then I'll show you judgment. The gospel is a leveler of persons because neither wealth nor status brings anyone closer to God than another. Wow. This should both encourage us and haunt us. It should encourage us because it reminds us who we were. It reminds us that just as none of us were incapable of being impacted by the gospel, so none of our friends and family are unreachable. None of our coworkers or classmates or bosses or presidents are unreachable. And, beloved, let this motivate us in 2024 that the gospel levels the playing field so that we are praying for anyone and everyone and praying that God will give you and me in 2024 red apple opportunities and that we will have the courage to take advantage of those, to share the leveling gospel with everyone, which is the last part of this quote. Everyone is in need of justification by faith in Christ. Amen? Please say amen in your hearts, even if you aren't out loud. The gospel levels the playing field, and that is what is on display in the marriage supper of the Lamb, that the church, the believers of all time, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, are in his army. But then there is also judgment revealed in this passage. Hamilton provides another quote. The judgment is also a leveler of persons because neither advantage nor disadvantage will affect the justice of God. And this is where the haunting comes in. That so it doesn't matter what family you grew up in. It doesn't matter what church you've attended. It doesn't matter what country you're, you're a citizen of. The, the justice of God will reach everyone. If you want to grow in your ability to really sit in who we were, let me commend a small book to you that will have lifelong impact. It's a book entitled A Gospel Primer. By Milton Vincent a gospel primer by Milton Vincent it will remind you what the true biblical gospel is that reminds us who we were see here it says small and great free and slave all men both the gospel and his judgments See, we conquer and endure because except for the grace of God, we would be in this judgment. In fact, let me give you some passages very quickly. 1 Corinthians 6, 10 through 11. It's a list of sinful lifestyles that we would all say, wow, yeah, that is sinful. But then Paul quickly says in verse 11, but such were some of you. Romans 3, 10 through 12. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Ephesians 2, 1, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, all following after the world system, the system that is designed to appeal to our lusts and our desires. That's all of us. We are in this group unless you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Also, we conquer and we endure because of who we were. Number three, We conquer and endure because of what he does. And these final three verses just give me a quick opportunity to highlight three systems that are often the lenses through which people study, understand, and respond to revelation. The first system is post-millennialism. Postmillennialism would see these verses and the chapter that follows not as future events, but simply describing that the Word of God is constantly advancing, constantly overcoming, and will one day overcome everyone so that the entire world will be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Postmillennialism. Premillennialism sees these three verses and the chapter that follows as a future second coming of Christ, where he will set up a literal 1,000 year kingdom, and then there will be a final battle that Jesus will defeat Satan and the world system and then set up eternity. The third system is referred to as amillennialism. It's the Greek concept of putting an alpha letter or an A letter before a word that means the opposite or the negative. So negative millennialism or no millennialism, which, by the way, I think that's a a bad misnomer or a misnomer. I think all millennialism looks at this passage and the chapter that follows as a repetition and a cycle of history that's happening over and over and over again until a final judgment. I'll unpack more next week, but then certainly in the summary sermon of Revelation. But for now, let's look at the text itself and answer the question what does he do? Two words. He wins. That's what he does. In fact, the team will put up a a passage from the Old Testament on the screen, Psalm 2, 1 through 12. And you're familiar with this. Why do the nations rage and the kings of the earth assemble themselves against the Lord and his anointed? And that's what we see here, which, by the way, we saw that back in chapter 16, didn't we? The sixth seal in chapter, or sixth bull in chapter 16 is very similar to this. There it talks about the river Euphrates being dried up, which by the way, we don't need rivers to be dried up in our modern era. In the ancient context, in order for a massive army to be able to cover a massive land mass, rivers and seas would have had to be dried up. And so that's why John uses the symbolism that he does to teach literal truth. And that is that the dragon is assembling the world system in a growing fashion to assault the church and more importantly the king of the church. And that's been going on since Genesis 3 and will continue until God says through Christ that's enough. And when that happens, look at what it says in verse 19. There is a beast, and then verse 20, a beast and a false prophet, which, by the way, I don't believe those are individuals. I've already laid the foundation for this, so I won't take a lot of time to explain how I got there, but I do think it's interesting for all of the people who think this is describing at some point Antichrist. We have not seen the term Antichrist anywhere in Revelation, have we? IF THERE IS AN INDIVIDUAL REFERRED TO AS ANTICHRIST, I WOULD THINK IN THIS BOOK, WITH ALL OF THESE CHAPTERS, WE WOULD SEE A REFERENCE TO ANTICHRIST, BUT WE DON'T. I THINK FALSE PROPHET, beast, PROSTITUTE, BABYLON ARE ALL ATTEMPTS BY JOHN TO USE DIFFERENT DESCRIPTIONS TO DESCRIBE THE SAME THING, WHICH IS THE WORLD SYSTEM. THESE ARE NOT INDIVIDUALS. This is the world system that is assembling against the king and his anointed, and it is powerful. But I think John is doing the same thing here that David did in Psalm 2 when he says, He who sits in the heavens, what? Come on. Come on, people. What does he do that is sitting in the heavens? He laughs, he wins let's remember that. And you see in verse 19 and 20 that that he's assembling this system and they're all like Ridley Scott would spend probably 30 minutes preparing this scene. He's a director of Gladiator and Napoleon epic war battles. And so you see this scene is described as assembling, and it's taken generations to get to this point. And then look at verse 20. The beast was captured. It's pretty quick, isn't it? Because all he does is win. Verse 20 says they're captured. Verse says are thrown alive into the lake of fire. This is not annihilation, but beloved, let me just pause right here and say, and be honest with the text. I don't know if hell is a literal fire like the properties of fire we have today, but I do know this. We have enough in scripture to see that it is an eternal, real, and painful, forever judgment. In fact, I think whatever image you can conjure up with the fire and the sulfur and the brimstone that we can imagine, it will be worse. And I think that's what John is describing here. And I think he's describing completion. Not only will the system be defeated, look at what it says, so will the individuals who pledged loyalty to it by receiving the mark of the beast. The system is defeated, The individuals are defeated. Verse 21 says the rest are slain. And then I think he uses symbolic imagery to describe this as the last judgment. The birds of the air, not literal, symbolic, are gorged. There's no more room left, which I don't think leaves room for a literal 1,000-year kingdom. Stay tuned for that next week. This is it. Generations of armies have assembled against the Lord. And I think John intentionally uses this description to bring the original audience and us as readers to a place where we conquer and endure because of what he does. Listen to Jim Hamilton's last quote. Who Christ is, who we were, what Christ does should move us to this, to long for his appearing, to obey him with instant willingness, to treasure God, understanding that nothing in this life can do for us what only God can do for us. Beloved, no matter what the weather is of our life, let's walk the mat.